Welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. This is episode 1003, my interview with Lee McIntyre. We're discussing his book, How to Talk to a Science Denier. I hope you enjoy. Hello, Lee, and welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. Great to have you here today. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. No, my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. It's a uh, uh, you've written some amazing books out there. Um, you, you're very much a thought leader and um, into both philosophy and science, I would argue. Oh, th- thanks very much. I appreciate that. T- tell us a little bit about your background there, Lee. So I'm a philosopher, um, and uh, so I have a PhD in philosophy, and I'm a, a philosopher of science. And for many years, mm. I studied um, what all philosophers of science study, which is what's special about science. Uh, how, how do scientists explain? How do you distinguish science from pseudoscience, etc.? And as I got further and further into my work, I wanted to reach a larger audience, and I wanted to also grapple with uh, larger questions. I mean, I, that's really the ultimate question. I guess there is no larger question in philosophy of science, but I guess I wanted to have a more practical application in the world. And uh, science deniers uh, seem to be the folks who were pushing back against science pretty hard. And it seemed to me that if we had a good account of what science was, we could use that to um, defend science against the science deniers. And so that's what I've been working on for the last several years. Prevent Science Against Science Deniers. Now, you've got a number of um, books here, one which recently I received a copy of, How to Talk to a Science Denier. Uh, you've also got Post Truth, which was um, quite a leading book. I think that was probably one of your best uh, releases. Is that correct? Uh, that everybody liked that one. Uh, it helped that Donald Trump was president. Uh, I think. Okay. Uh, we were going going through that, but uh, th- that that one was quite popular. Yes. So, how does one get into this field of philosophy and science philosophy in particular? Philosophy of science. Um, what happened with me is I grew up uh, fascinated with the idea of uh, science. Uh, I just, I, I, I love to study, um, I love to read about how scientists made their discoveries. Yeah. And when I got to college, I guess I was ready to become an astronomer. That's really what I wanted to do. But then there was a, um, a distribution requirement that we had to take a course in uh, social sciences. And I took a course in economics where the professor announced on the first day that he was going to show us why economics wasn't a science. And I thought, well, well, that's wrong. <laughs> you know, the, the, and I got more and more interested in that question, which ultimately led me to the philosophy of science. Hmm. And one day I was in the upper stack of the uh, Olin Library at Wesleyan reading Karl Popper, Conjectures and Refutations. And that was it. I can still remember the seat I was sitting in and what the weather was like outside, yeah. because that was the day that I became a philosopher of science. Right. There you go. And how long ago was that? I was a, boy, I hate to count it up. I was a, a freshman in college. Yeah. So uh, that would have been um, uh, 40, a uh, little bit more than 40 years ago. So you've definitely got some experience in this field. <laughs> well, I've, I've known what I wanted to do for quite some time. Um, the... The trick was making the transition from writing just for other philosophers to writing for the general public, because right. there's a whole um, set of uh, technical questions in the philosophy of science, which I'm interested in. I mean, I'm a, I'm a scholar in the field, but 
my, my challenge and the, the thing that I really enjoy the most about writing for the general public is how to get them into what you know previously had been a kind of a closed debate, sometimes because of the jargon. Sometimes mm. it's because people might not care. But my thought was people would care if they could understand it. For instance, the the idea about a uh, this is Karl Popper's idea about there being a demarcation between science and non-science. Mm. That's quite an interesting question. And uh, it's got some barriers to studying it if you are just, you know, writing for other philosophers and you, you know, using all of the um, vocabulary that they're using. But I think that there's a way to make that debate uh, palatable and even uh, engaging for the general public. And so that that was uh, something that I've, I've written about. I, I did another book uh, between Post-Truth and my most recent one called The Scientific Attitude, where I really went back to uh, my roots in the philosophy of science, uh, offering an account of what I thought was special about science, which is not method, and it doesn't solve the demarcation debate. It's the idea that um, scientists care about evidence, and they're willing to change their mind on the basis of new evidence. And mm. once I wrote about that, I discovered, you know what? That is how you push back against science deniers, because science deniers are not capable, they're not willing to say what evidence would change their mind. Yeah. And every scientist can do that, and science deniers cannot do that. And so when I go out and talk to science deniers, that's the question that I ask them. What evidence could change your mind? And it's uh, I have never really received a good answer from a science denier to that question. Hmm. Yes, interesting. So where do we start on this topic of of science um, and the philosophy of science, I suppose. I mean, how do we determine what is actual science and, and what is not? Well, you put your finger on the thing that philosophers of science have been arguing about for the last hundred years. And a lot of people have been concerned over whether there's some sort of a, a logical criteria of demarcation, something about the method, the way that scientists are doing their work yeah. that marks that off. Because, I mean, that's the holy grail in philosophy of science, because if you could find that, then you could sort, uh, you would have a good definition of science, and you could sort um, the world into things that deserve to be sciences and things that didn't. Hmm. The problem is, that over the last hundred years, whatever criteria people have come up with, there have been exceptions. Yeah. Either there were things that should have been science that didn't pass the cut, or the criteria was too liberal and it let in some things that we didn't want to have let in. So when you think about it, this criteria has to be perfect, right? It has to be something that um, allows all and only science to pass, which uh, to now to put it in a little bit of jargon, you need to understand the necessary and sufficient conditions for science. And that is almost impossible. Uh, in fact, there's one scholar, Larry Loudon, who 30 years ago wrote a paper called The Demise of the Demarcation Problem, where he argued that this was impossible, that if we were going to solve it, we would have solved it by now. And it was a, a really terrific paper. I'm not sure I, I agree with it completely, but it was enough to motivate me to try to think about, well, is there a way to still defend science without solving that problem? Because if not, 
then philosophy of science is going to be fairly useless to the practical push against anti-vaxxers and climate deniers and flat earthers and all the rest of them. We need to have a way to push back against those folks. And I think that philosophy can have one if it talks about the scientific attitude. So that, mm. that was my evolution through the field. But science is evidence-based, right? So it's based on data and I guess is it based on fact as well, but can it be absolutely based on fact or can it be based on absolute fact? I, th I think that scientists prefer to think of it being based on evidence Yeah. because evidence is what supports or doesn't support a hypothesis. Now, a hypothesis can come from anywhere. And sometimes what so you So a hypothesis of, doesn't need the evidence. Well, it's funny because usually there has to be some sort of observation, some sort of evidence that's come in before one thinks of a hypothesis. Yeah. But then when you go out and you try to test it in the real world, that's where evidence comes in, right? Because maybe your hypothesis, your you know, your theory supports a prediction. And if the prediction is true, then you live to fight another day. And if it's but if it's not true, then there's something wrong and you have to go back to the drawing board. Hmm. And so it's when you use the word fact, I, I worry about the word fact, because even though, you know, if I'm in an argument with a science denier, I'll defend, you know, facts all day long. But the philosopher in me worries a little bit about the word fact, because a fact all by itself doesn't really do much. It doesn't really explain anything. Um, you really need a theory to explain. Um, uh, facts are interesting, but they can sometimes depend on your point of view or or be useful or not, depending on what theory you've got going. So the, the real, for me, the real coin of the realm is to think about evidence because evidence, as I said, either supports a hypothesis or a theory or not. And that's when you really are getting into the game of explanation in the science, in the sciences, so mere, mere facts. Um, they're really uh, just, uh, observations. They're just things that you notice. And I mean, your podcast is called The Hidden Why. Hmm. You have to ask why. Hmm. You have to be curious to know, well, okay, the sky is blue. Why is it blue? Yeah. Are, are, is the atmosphere on all the planets blue? If not, why not? And then, you're, and then you're off to the races with a hypothesis and a test and a prediction. That's, that's really the foundation of science, not really facts, well, I mean, yes, facts play a role, but it's the ability to ask, okay, but why is it that way? Hmm. And you've got to ask why, but if we look at black and white, the sky is blue, like I'm looking out my window now, and it's absolutely beautiful blue. Mm -hmm. There doesn't seem any reason why I would deny that, number one, um, mm -hmm. because I can see it, I can experience it. It's evidence-based as well. Yes. But something a little bit more controversial perhaps and maybe not as much now as it was but climate change for example that's a bit harder to see the black and white without going into deep research and finding real scientific evidence into it uh, ordinarily i would agree uh, but i've now had enough experience with science deniers to feel that even when it is black and white they can still deny what's right in front of their eyes so it doesn't have to, we make a mistake if we think of science denial as being something where, well, you know, it's so esoteric, it's so um, 
difficult to know the truth, that there are really two sides to this question and science and I are just more skeptical than the rest of us. Hmm. That, that's, that's not true. For one thing, they're not more skeptical. They tend to be more gullible. They're just gullible about different different things. Yeah. But but the um, well, I lost my train of thought there. So we better move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I mean, if they want to find a reason not to believe, then then they, I guess, they will. Um, yes. Like like that, flat that, flat, right. flat Earth, I, I suppose. You know. Um, and I, and I guess, you know, again, black and white, and I could be wrong, I don't really know the right answer, and I've never had an argument or a debate with a, a person that believes in the flat earth theory. Um, but I would say that there's I enough... Have. have you? <laughs> well, you can, yeah. You could probably help out. I mean, there's probably enough evidence in my knowledge, and I've got limited knowledge and intelligence about it, but um, by living on this earth for 40 years, I, I absolutely can't see why um, someone would convince me that the earth is flat. Um, nor would I have my energy to, to give up to that topic anyway because I don't think it's that important to me. Right. Uh, whereas climate change, on the other hand, yeah, that would be an interesting one. Yeah. Um, and um, whether you're for it or not, I think it's an important one yeah. for, for everyone yeah. um, to try and ask why and understand it. So I guess if there is an importance there, then we have uh, more passion or, or um, urgency to agree or disagree with something and then you get to the scientific evidence um, side of the thing, and, and I go, well, you know, you know, if you have someone that I disagree with, and let's say that they say that climate change is real, and I say I disagree, then I ask them for evidence as why I should believe what they're saying. Often I'll get nothing. You know, they won't provide me evidence, yeah. and vice versa. If I sat here and said no, I don't believe in climate change, they would say, well, provide me the evidence. And again, I probably wouldn't provide any evidence. So. There's no one out there in these arguments providing evidence to to back up their claims. It's just that they have this underlying belief that, hey, that's what they have uh, believed and that's what they've fallen into and beliefs can change. But often when they're that strong about a topic that most people are passionate about, it's very hard to sway them one way or the other. I, I think I think you're right about that. And But one thing that I've noticed from talking to science deniers is that they'll tell you that their beliefs are based on evidence. Yeah, they 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 will maintain that um, they that they have evidence and that your evidence is flawed, mm. and that the, the and the reason this is so fascinating to me is that you know I agree with you that there are some kinds of science denial that are more important than others. You know, COVID denial and climate denial. It doesn't get higher stakes than that. Mm. But the interesting thing that I've discovered in my research is that all science deniers reason in the same way. Okay. And so, so what? So the line of attack, if you want to think of it that way, against a science denier, is often not the specific facts that you would need. You know, if you were talking to a climate denier and you needed to talk about the temperature of the sea ice. Or you know, uh, global, uh, uh, you know, the the, uh, the jet stream and how it's changed over the years. You know, you you could you could put all the evidence that you wanted in front of their face, yeah. And they're still not going to believe it. And but the reason is because number one, they distrust you. But the second is just because that that distrust is part of a larger reasoning strategy that prevents them. It it insulates them from having to change their mind. And once you 
but but here's the good news. Once you know that blueprint, you can use that against them. You can use that to ask questions, not about the facts, but about how they're reasoning based on the facts. And that is thrilling to be able to do that because, you know, just to give you the short answer, every science denier cherry picks facts, believes in conspiracy theories, relies on fake experts, engages in illogical reasoning, and thinks that science has to be perfect. That last one gives you a lot of room because what it means is that they fundamentally misunderstand science. They will often say that science is about proof when it's not. And so the frustrating thing about a conversation with a climate denier is they'll say, well, you know, let's wait for the next experiment. Let's wait for definitive proof. You're not going to get it. You're not going to have definitive proof. And, you know, if that's what they're waiting for, it's just a delay tactic so that they can continue to believe what they want to believe. So I think that the actual tip of the spear in this debate is to try to get them to understand that for all their talk of skepticism and being more scientific than the scientists and you know how they're the next Galileo, they're actually not engaging in the kind of reasoning that scientists engage in. Because if they were, they would have to be able to, number one, tell you what evidence could change their mind if you had it. Mm. And number two, they would have to live or die by crucial experiments, right? They would have to be able to say, you know, if I'm right, then this couldn't be true, but it is true, so I must not be right. But they will not do that. Um, science deniers are very into uh, what here in the States, I don't know if you use the same word, what aboutism? You know, you, you, you blow them out of the water on one set of facts, they say, oh, but what about this? What about that? Hmm. Um, in science, it doesn't work that way. So, so I've, I've kind of made it my mission when I'm talking to science deniers to talk to them about how science actually works. Hmm. And for the most part, they have not heard that before. They've got a whole script that they've learned from, you know, whomever, whatever YouTube videos they've watched or whatever uh, uh, information sources they have. But they've never really thought about how they're reasoning. So that's where I uh, bore in. So how do we, just trying to put this in context, like, um, let's say I'm the climate denier. How do you try and influence my reasoning? I don't. I don't quite understand that. Well, the first thing to do in talking to a science denier is to to listen, to yeah. let them speak. Yeah. And eventually, they will say something that will be a conspiracy theory or a cherry picked fact, or or rely on a fake expert. Well, what's a good example in climate change that you've come across, like a, a popular conspiracy or a cherry picked fact that they'll bring up? The, the One of the most popular ones is the claim that the global temperature hasn't gone up uh, in the last 10 years. Now, now, this one's getting a little old because they actually made this claim, you know, more like 15 years ago. But the point was that, you know, looked at from this particular measurement, from this particular way, if you cherry picked out the starting point of the graph, you could, you know, maybe if you looked at a sideways, think that, um, the, temp the global temperature had not gone up in the, in the last 10 years. Now, that was because they started with a year in which the global temperature was artificially high because of El Nino. Hmm. So if you look at the entire graph, you'll see that that's an anomaly. But of course, that's the one that they zero in on and say, yes, but you have to explain that. Hmm. Now, 
you know, Ted Cruz, an American senator, was you know very big on on this. You know, global temperature hasn't gone up in the last 10 years. And they show you the graph. Well, of course, what's happened since then is it's also been shown that that graph was false. That that the measurements, the original measurements, they were not fraudulent. They were done by the I think it was the NOAA or NASA, but that when they have now uh, uh, have a better set of data, they understand that it the temperature, the global temperature was not that high in the El Nino year, and I forget which year that was now. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, and, and that's another thing that science does. It changes its mind when new facts come aboard. Yeah. But, but the denier will just, you know, hang on to that. And why change? And then, so, so once you've discredited it, then they might say, you know, well, but the real data have been covered up because NASA is conspiring to hold back the data which show, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's a conspiracy theory. Hmm. And, you know, you, you can talk to them about that. And, and again, it's not that they're necessarily going to, uh, you know, say what a fool I've been, but you can at least get them to think, right? You can share some of the, um, you can plant the seed of doubt. Hmm. By getting them to think about something in a different way than they have. Yeah. Uh, one one thing that I've tried to do since I have spoken with flat earthers is to say, do you know that the way that you're reasoning is exactly how flat earthers reason? Are you a flat earther? And they'll say, no, those people are crazy. Well, and yet you're relying on fake experts and cherry picking facts and believe in conspiracy theories. How is your reasoning not different? from theirs. I mean, I'm talking about your reasoning strategy here, hmm. you know, puts them in an uncomfortable spot. Yeah. That's a little hardcore. That's, that's a little more than I usually want to do yeah. because, um, what I, um, it's not that I'm afraid to do it. It's that it doesn't work as well. I mean, what, what really works? Well, it'd just tick them off, wouldn't and this, it? This is, and make you mistrust you more. That's right. What, what really works in the, you know, the core argument that I make in, in uh, how to talk to a science denier is, that, is to remember that science denial is not about facts, it's about identity. And when you attack their beliefs, you're attacking them as a person. Hmm. And so what you really need to do is to build trust. And you do that by engaging with them face to face and listening and being calm and patient and having empathy, if you possibly can, um, that is when science deniers change their mind. When they, when those walls of distrust are broken down. Hmm. Yeah. There's, there's no fact that you're going to share with them that's going to blow them out of the water. You go into it thinking you're going to debunk them, and you're and you're going to come away empty-handed. But if you if you actually listen and try to engage, sometimes that can work. Yeah, yeah. And I guess if, if they walk away with it still seemingly believing what they believe, um, but you've given them something to think about, then they may think about it more in their own personal space and, and over time with their own research come to some different conclusion, which may then change their belief. They might. They, they might. I mean, if they're, if they're convinced, look, here's another tactic. I mean, if they're, if they're so distrustful and they're conspiracy theorists and they think that everybody's lying to them, one thing you can do is undermine the people who have told them the things that they believe because, I mean, they're relying on fake experts. That they are re lying to them. And so, you know, to point out, well, how do you know that this person is telling you the truth? 
you know, uh, that, that, that can be effective as well. Well, I guess that's where we get to with science and, and evidence base, yeah, and, and being that science can change upon new evidence. Um, you know, when climate change first, and I don't know when it did, you can probably tell me, but when climate change first became noticed as being something that's real, um, that was probably what, how many decades ago? 30, 30 years ago? So, yeah, what? it was in the 70s. 70s? So uh-huh. 50 years ago. So it's taken a long, long time for us to get evidence enough to uh, even convince most scientists, I would think, that climate change is, is happening. Is that right? Well, I, I mean, it, it depends. Um, climatologists have known for some time. The, 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 one, the one really shocking fact is that some of the original research came out of ExxonMobil. Um, right. Their, their, their own scientists were making projections about climate change yeah. um, 40 years ago and using it to make recommendations about how they could, their company could do uh, more oil drilling in the Arctic once the polar ice sheets had melted. Hmm. Now, now that's cynical, isn't it? <laughs> right, because they knew that it was true, and yet the company was donating money to cover it up. Yeah, yeah. So, do you? But would you think that um, evidence accumulates to make it more plausible for? For people to actually accept, no question. I mean, over time, and and this is reflected in some polling data. There are fewer and fewer people who are climate deniers, um, but of course, stubbornly, some of the ones who are climate deniers are in the United States Congress, and so they prevented the United States from really doing everything that it should about. Uh, climate change. Mm. But the, the evidence is overwhelming. I, I remember reading a statistic reported by Reuters um, last year that said that the there was the, the data, the evidence in favor of climate change uh, um, was now anthropogenic climate change was now at the five sigma level, which means it's a million to one yeah. that they're wrong. Yeah. Now, and that's maybe another entree to talk to a climate denier to say, okay, there's a one in a million chance that you're right. Do you want to be that guy? Yeah. So, you, I mean, you, and again, this, really, this one in a million chance over 50 years yeah, to last year. That's right. But when it was first came out, um, you know, they didn't have that science and that data. And, and what I think, and maybe I'm wrong in this, but when science is based on evidence, and I think um, in early stages of anything, scientists can also cherry pick information to make their argument more supported? The individual scientists can. The beauty of science is that when they do that, their colleagues will bring them up short. I mean, the, the, what, what I'm quoting to you when I say million to one is the, the, the consensus of scientific opinion based on the data, right? And you, you're absolutely correct that the consensus has grown over time, but there has been a consensus for an awfully long time yeah, and what what happened early on, uh, I mean, twenty or more years ago, is that long, long past the point at which there was scientific consensus, there were people that were pumping out disinformation to make it seem like there was still a scientific debate, hmm. you know, to undermine that consensus. So it was the manufacture of doubt. It wasn't that there was actual scientific doubt, though there's always some. Yeah, uh, it was that they were. Uh, high, they, they they were trying to whip the idea 
that there was doubt where there really wasn't any. And do you know where? But that that's came that's from? like a influence saying you know the pressure and the influence coming from a an outside party that wants it to be yes taking that evidence in, in their favor, obviously. Exactly, and and that came from the original modern science denial campaign, which started with the American tobacco companies in the 1950s, who were worried that of a forthcoming study that was going to show that uh, cigarette smoking uh, caused lung cancer. Hmm. And they these tobacco executives met and hired a public relations expert to come in and talk to them and advise them what to do. And he said, fight the science. Um, make the public think that there is that there is doubt. Hire your own scientists. Hmm. You know, start your own research institutes. Take out ads in. They, they took out full page ads in, that a sixth of the uh, American public saw in newspapers, um, arguing that you know the the link between cigarette smoking and cancer had never been proven. Well, of course it hadn't been proven. Nothing is proven in science. It's based on induction. But they rode that doubt for, for 40 or 50 years. My dogs are in here, and they're they're uh, going to make some noise. They're groaning. Uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. Right. Yeah, you just heard my, my great big German shepherds. Hmm. Um, they're going to um, uh, try to manufacture that doubt hmm. so that they can continue, because that's all they need. You understand? They don't have to... Um, prove that they're right all they have to do is show suggest that there's doubt and then they could continue to sell the cigarettes hmm. which they did hmm. for decades until they finally paid a huge settlement and said okay everybody knows it's dangerous now let us continue to sell the cigarettes that same blueprint was followed by the climate deniers and has been followed by every uh science denial campaign since then right up to today with covid denial it's exactly the same playbook and we keep getting fooled by it every single time. So what's happening now with this this COVID denial from your let's go let's go on because that's pretty relevant yeah. to a lot of people listening, I would imagine. COVID denial was created. Nobody I mean the anti-vax existed all you know already. That was already a a topic of science denial talking about the MMR vaccine, uh, et cetera, and the, the false claim that it caused autism, which has been debunked many times. So that the anti-vax already existed. Hmm. But what happened with COVID is that it was politicized. Um, and once... Uh, it, what do you mean by politicized? How does that work? Climate denial was also politicized. Well, um, I'm saying that um, uh, Trump and other right-wing politicians in the United States decided that it was not good for them for COVID to be real, and so they downplayed it. And that rolled right into fake cures, and it rolled right into um, rejecting masks, which has always mystified me, because if you think about it, if people are afraid of the vaccine, you know, they're afraid it's going to harm them, What's their objection to putting on a mask? That that you know should keep them safe. That should be the fallback position. Hmm. Uh, so I mean that's that's evidence to me that it was politicized. Hmm. Uh, and the, I mean the other piece of this, of course, is disinformation. Yeah. False, intentionally created uh, disinformation. Yeah. That you know comes from people who have something else that they want to sell. 
But some of it also comes from uh, other countries. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, Russia had a competing vaccine to the Pfizer one, um, you know, right at the very beginning, and was uh, sending out propaganda to undermine American confidence in the Pfizer vaccine. Hmm. Um, this is not a secret. This is, you know, in mainstream media, these uh, stories, I forget where I where I read it, but, you know, this this is this is well known, uh, not just to American intelligence. This is known. Hmm. And um, so, you know, in a situation like that, where it's a life or death matter, some people have a stake in it. Uh, disinformation is created and then pump out, pumped out to the American public. It's inevitable that something like that will uh, will happen. And it is, it for me professionally and personally, it's been horrifying to watch hmm. because it was like watching uh, climate change denial happen all over again on a much faster time scale. Yeah. Well, I guess that's what's so um, difficult about this situation. And from my perspective, I don't think there's enough critical conversations happening um, mm -hmm. at the moment. Um I mean, coronavirus has been around for, for a while, not just a couple mm -hmm. of years. Um, vaccines have been around for, for many, many yeah. years, right. decades, mm -hmm. um, and has been one of the best things for humanity um, mm -hmm. since sliced bread, I guess. And mm -hmm. I could be accused of <laughs> claiming that, but, um, you know, that's all there. That's fine. But what we're seeing in a, in a very short period of time, like you said, is a whole lot of contradictions and I guess it's because there's a lot of fake news as well and um, all that sort of stuff and social media, we're very globally connected and anyone can have their opinion. Um, but does it have something to do with the, the huge level of uncertainty that exists right now and the anxiety from that that gives people doubt um, and also yes. potentially the contradictions that are out there um, based on what people have heard um, both through their own research or through mass media? Yes. I mean, the, the underlying amount of fear and uncertainty that, uh, you know, that that's something that propagandists exploit. You know, they, they often go for some existing, they don't just create it out of nowhere. They, they uh, look after some existing fault line. Hmm. So the fact that anti-vax already existed, you know, around fear of vaccines, that, you know, that was very, um, very handy for them. Mm. Right to to uh, to be able to do that. Yeah. So the um. Uh, but but I mean, when you say it, it it's reasonable to have some questions. I don't think a lot of people do question it, but like I think a lot of people just yeah. you know believe what they're told them and what they're fed, and that yeah. just depends on their avenues of information. Okay. Um, you know, and I would think that a lot of people here, their avenue of information is the TV and the news. Um, yeah. That's controlled, I would think, by uh, a fairly uh, significant few. You know, what's released in media mm -hmm. is generally run by a, a few of the larger powers, um, depending on where you get the information from, of course. So I think people will sort of take the side of what the information they get. And people won't – I don't feel that people will do their own research well enough. They'll just take it – you know what, the FDA is there and, um, you know, they approve things um, very carefully um, and they probably don't even think that much into it. They probably just say, look, that's what they've done. Vaccines have been around forever, so it's safe. And yet um, in the United States we have Fox News, hmm. which um, is an alternative news source. Yeah. Um, 
on questions like this and, and many others. So you, yeah. you mentioned the problem of fake news before. Hmm. Um, one thing that happens when fake news gets into the marketplace is that it confuses people. It makes people not only think that the fake thing is true, it makes them think that the true thing might be fake. And so they might come to the conclusion that, well, you just, you can't know, there's too much uncertainty. Scientists need to go back to the drawing board and settle this question, even when the question is settled. Right? Yeah. So again, we go back to the tobacco strategy, raise doubt, even about something that is well settled. Yeah. Um, it, it's, what I was gonna say is, it's but I guess I mean they, they at the, at the beginning. At the beginning, yeah, you would expect that. Like, overcome by evidence, right? Doubt, doubt should be overcome by evidence. Yeah, but what I guess would be my point here is that the evidence, um, you know, how much evidence do we have around what's happening right. right now? Because it's happened so fast. Whereas you look at tobacco and and climate change, mm -hmm. that took many decades to uh, continually find new evidence to help further reinforce that in the eyes of the uh, the disbeliever. Mm -hmm. Um, yes, uh, I, I mean, we're, I guess, because COVID is worldwide, and because so many people have had their vaccines now, hmm. we do have a considerable amount of evidence yeah. over on whether the vaccines are effective, but also over whether they're dangerous. Yeah. Um, I, I sometimes get mail from anti-vaxxers who claim that the, you know, the actual number of people who have died of the COVID, taking the COVID vaccine, you know, is this obscenely large number, but it's not being reported in the media. Again, conspiracy theory, right? Hmm. So I ask them, you know, what's their source? They share it with me, fake expert. Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, it's it's just, it's all the same. It's, it's the same trick run over and over. How do you determine um, a fake expert? That's interesting. Um... Takes a little bit of digging sometimes. Uh, <laughs> I reckon some, it would. Sometimes the, the well, the interesting part is that you know when you hear that well, scientists have claimed this about climate change, and then you find out that the, you know the 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 person is a, uh, uh, you know, a geologist, not a climatologist, or you, you know that that they or they have a PhD, but they don't have a PhD in one of the sciences, or worse yet, um, this happened to me the other day as I was. Uh, on a, uh, a radio show and I was in the green room and I was waiting, you know, to get in, led into the next radio program. And I heard the tail end, and I won't tell you which one, but I heard the tail end of a program from just before. And the guy was a straight up science denier. He was a quack uh, a cure uh, a, a doctor who was offering his own um, uh, products for sale. Right. That's how you determine a fake expert, right? He's saying something that's so far outside the mainstream, it's unbelievable. Hmm. I mean, I Googled him later, found out he's been banned from Twitter, but he has this website in which he sells, you know, all of his own products to cure all sorts of diseases. I, I don't think you have to walk too many more steps to understand <laughs> well, that's a fake expert. Yeah, they're probably easier to identify than, than some than others, I guess, but... Um... If you dig... If you dig, you can usually find uh, something on them, though. I mean, they, they, they hide it under a veneer of uh, expertise. You know, they've got their own show, et cetera, et cetera. This guy had people calling in saying, you know, they've taken his product and they were cured overnight. You know, the doctors told me they had a year to live, but, you know, they were still alive five years later. Um, I'm sure he screens his calls. You know, I'm, I'm I mean, it, it just, it's not that hard to do. Um, and this is when I talk about deniers being gullible, hmm. because 
they'll often describe themselves as skeptics, but they're only skeptical about the things they don't want to believe. They're they're completely gullible about mm. the things they do want to believe and will rely on a fake expert. Um, I'll give you an example. Andrew Wakefield, the fellow um, from Britain who came up with the hypothesis, debunked, discredited, fraudulent hypothesis that the MMR vaccine caused autism. Uh, he had his medical license stripped, um, but he's still giving talks at anti-vax conventions and treated as a rock star. Yeah, yeah. Do you think there's a lot of um, right now with everything that's going on, all this uncertainty, um, and particularly here in Australia, I could give you a few examples where I, I do feel um, people are confused um, mm -hmm. because the way the situation's handled, um, right or wrong, whether the science is there or not for vaccinations, whether you want to have a vaccination or not, whatever, but there seems to be this way we're handling that creates many contradictions and I guess uh, illogical um, reasoning for people to say, well, hang on, what is right, what is wrong, and question things. Uh, for example, you can go out and go to the one of the big shops to do your shopping with a hundred other people, but you can't go visit your mum and dad. Mm -hmm. So I guess that creates confusion, doesn't it? Well, it, it does, and I mean, it, it is it is important for scientists to communicate better with the public mm. about what they know and don't know, and about why they're making their various recommendations. Um, and perhaps that's part of the problem with the, the whole situation at the moment, that there's not it, been enough discussion yes. other than you're doing this and this is what we, we think is best for you based on our health you know, experts. Yes. And, and, so, yeah. and if they're at all condescending about it or you know, saying, well, you should believe me because I'm a scientist, who are you? Or you know, why do you have doubts? What's your education? That's toxic. That's terrible to do that. You have to, even if somebody has you know, the worst... Uh, um, ideas possible, you still have to listen to them so that they know that they're heard Yeah, and then will trust you enough that you can share accurate information, which will overcome their doubts. Yeah. If, if somebody's treated in a rough manner, and especially if they feel condescended to or insulted, um, then they'll just pick the opposite side and, and it's no longer about facts. No, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess, and what's your opinion on this? Like Australia here is in lockdown yeah, in, in a couple of states. Um, and that's full lockdowns with many tight restrictions. Um, yeah. And New South Wales, um, one of our most popular states, has been in that for now 60 days or more. Uh, and it looks like it might continue. Now, one would think that that's a, a fairly hard way to put pressure mm -hmm. on a population to, number one, get vaccinated uh, and maybe even believe um, something that they don't mm -hmm. believe. Um. Maybe I mean, is it the my question is is that a tactic to try to get people vaccinated or is it a precautionary measure? Because I know that originally Australia and New Zealand were kind of at the at the forefront of oh, well, yeah. uh, of this. I mean, New Zealand went into lockdown recently over one case. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it it could. I, I, I guess it's how, you know how you think of it. Maybe you have a different relationship to your government uh, and your government officials, different amount of trust than they do in the United States. I couldn't see something like that really uh, uh, happening in the United States. And you know, so I listened to to your story, and I think, why can't we do better here hmm. uh, on something like that? I mean, I don't know. I, I haven't been following the news enough to know what happened in Australia that you went down 
back into lockdown. How many cases was it? What happened that led to that? Yeah, and nothing like what, what I've read, at least, um, that's happening over there where you are with case well, numbers. It's very minute, but our population's right. not as condensed. And um, yeah. you know, there's, there's many different factors, I guess, that contribute to our case numbers and what's happened. Um, but look, they, they went into lockdown last year and, and managed to, to slow the curve, I guess was the idea. Yes. You know, right. so yeah. we could get um, hospital upgrades and things in place. So when, mm-hmm. when the coronavirus continues, which naturally it will, um, we would have better um, infrastructure in place to deal with um, the pandemic. Um, and what's happened, and this is, well, I guess I don't know, but what's happened again, it's, you know, we've had the case numbers come here, the Delta variant, for example, and and case numbers have, have gone up. They went into lockdown fairly quickly, but maybe some would argue not quick enough. Um, but now it's, you know, they've just increased the, the lockdown areas. Um, now the whole state of New South Wales is in lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've said until we get the case numbers lower, then we'll, you know, reduce restrictions. But I feel that now they've got to a point where they just can't get the case numbers under control. Um, and now the objective is to get vaccinations up to 70 or 80% before they before they uh, reduce restrictions. Mm. Um, and what's happened just um, recently is now they're saying, well, look, we'll reduce restrictions for people who are fully vaccinated. Uh, if you're not fully vaccinated, then you're not going to have, have those restrictions reduced for you. How civilized? How do you accomplish that? I mean, <laughs> I don't. I, I I marvel at that. So now this is this is a problem with you know doubt. People that will then go further with this and not really be interested to listen to the science behind what's happening. Uh, I I I suppose. I mean, it, if you think about it, for many years science enjoyed. The reputation of authority without people having to know the details or just, well, science said, do this, so you do it. Hmm. Um, now people, uh, that that has eroded. People still trust scientists quite a bit more than they do, you know, politicians or most anyone else. Hmm. And, and even science skeptics, they're skeptical about certain things, not, you know, not most things that science gives them. But people do feel empowered now um, especially in the United States and in Britain, to go um, to go to Google and ask a few questions, watch a few videos, find their online community, and get radicalized uh, to you know to then believe that everyone else is lying to them. You know they'll find the alternative information. It's a it, it's a terrible thing. You know I I was reading something um, not long ago, and I, I wish I could cite it perfectly, but they. This guy, he had a hypothesis about why COVID denial was worse in Australia, Canada, the United States, and Britain. Hmm. And the and the argument was because they were all they all had news outlets run by Rupert Murdoch. Right. And I I I, I, I can't remember any more about what he said than that, but I found that fascinating hmm. because it. It, it raises this question of, you know, of what is it? Is it is it a matter of, is it a matter of information? Is it a matter of doubt or is it a matter of trust? Hmm. I mean, doubt can be overcome with accurate information. Distrust cannot. Hmm. Distrust, distrust can be exploited and cultivated if you're choosing sides, if it's us against them, if hmm. it's polarized, if you're... You know, you're angry. 
you can do that. And it seems to have been getting more polarized in recent years. It has. Hmm. It, it has in the United States. Which is terribly is now, destructive. Well, in the United States, it's now jumped just not just from to uh, my dog again, not just from science denial, but to reality denial. Uh, look at the horrible situation now in the U.S. where one of our large two political parties has been taken over by the fairy tale that the 2020 election was stolen. Um, that's a denialist campaign, the same as climate change, the same as flat earth. Um, and it's, you know, it, it, it goes on, QAnon, um, the, uh, the idea that the January 6th insurrectionists at the Capitol were just peaceful protesters. It's, it's unhinged. It's not related to reality and facts anymore. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's not just about science. That's the worrisome part. I wrote that earlier book, Post-Truth, to try to get ahead of that. And um, really, in some ways, underestimated the problem. I mean, I argued in that book that all of those decades of unmitigated science now led to post-truth, but it's it has certainly gotten worse since then. Hmm. Do you think there's any, like right now, is there any influence from... Um, like you know, pharmaceutical companies, for example, people probably have a lot of distrust with those companies, and I guess that's what's creating some trust distrust around the vaccinations. You know, I I don't buy it. Um, people say they distrust pharmaceutical companies, but they still take drugs. Mm. They distrust them on some things and not not others. I mean, look, yeah. Pfizer makes Pfizer makes Viagra. You do not have the same amount of denial over whether Viagra works as over whether Pfizer's COVID vaccine works. Hmm. Now ask yourself why. I mean, it's an interesting because <laughs> people don't want to doubt whether, you know, that, that, that they're not worried yeah. about that. But they are worried about the vaccine. Why? Hmm. It's because they've been led to that. They've been fed disinformation and misinformation to make them skeptical. There has been no denialist campaign about Viagra. What happens if they're not worried about the vaccination? They just don't feel they need to take it. Um, they're wrong. <laughs> I mean... There, but most most people. You, you're right. Some, I mean, some. No, but why? Say, why would you? Why would you take something if you don't? If you feel you're healthy enough, and you don't need to take it. Like, um, th that position is actually fairly rare, though. I mean, so, some some deniers will say that they'll say, "Well, I'm young and healthy. I don't need to take it." But for for the most part, the at least the folks that I've been reading about are the ones who are absolutely petrified that it's you know, that it's going to cause some sort of a, a vaccine injury, some sort of a, right. of a health problem. I mean, look, if you really didn't care, you know, if look, if you didn't think it was going to hurt you, but you just did care, you were indifferent. Yeah. Then you could actually get those people to take the vaccine by having an um, airline refuse them boarding or their job was going to fire them if they didn't get the vaccine. Hmm. They'd finally say, all right, you know, I'm young, I'm healthy, I don't need it, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. What happens is that people change what they say. An awful lot of deniers recently have been saying, you know, it's just an experiment. We're just guinea pigs. 
I don't touch the vaccine. <laughs> it's it's given an emergency uh, authorization. Yeah. But you know, but the FDA has not approved it. Hmm. Well, the FDA approved <coughs> um, the uh, Pfizer vaccine about five or six days ago. Yeah. There has not been a rush of anti-vaxxers to get the vaccine since then. Hmm. They changed their mind. That that is, it's whataboutism again, right? Hmm. They change, you know, well, okay, the FDA has done this, but what about this? What about that? Hmm. You know, it's, it's, if people want to be convinced of something, they're going to go cherry pick enough facts, not necessarily facts, but information, you know, disinformation from fake experts Hmm. to try to convince themselves that it's true. And, and I'll, I'll offer you something else to put into the hopper here. In the United States, there's already too much in the hopper. <laughs> well, in the United States, um, there have been. I, I heard on the news the other day that some shocking number, like sixty or seventy percent of the poison control calls in Alabama and Mississippi, which are American states, hmm. um, were over a drug called ivermectin, which is oh, a yeah. a dewormer for horses. Yeah. Heard about this. But they talked about it on on uh, Fox News, um, and a lot of people went out and tried it. Now, why weren't they skeptical about that? Yeah. Why yeah, Why yeah. weren't they? Why were oh, they absolutely, about that? I mean, absolutely. If they said, you know, I won't take the vaccine, but I will take ivermectin. I mean, it was an industrial strength, you know, horse dewormer. Yeah. And they got sick from it. Yeah. It's Th- strange. Those are it? not skeptics. No, no, and I guess I, I guess there's extremes and there's there's non-extremes, but you know I look at the um, the flu shot, the the common flu that we've had yep. many 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 decades, and I wasn't a person that went out and got my flu shot every year. Were you? Uh, every year I get one. Yeah, yeah. So there was probably, and I don't know if it's different in the states with how people do things, um, but. Most of the, well, many people that I know wouldn't go regularly out to get their flu shots, but there were many equally that would. Mm-hmm. Now, is there is there a problem getting it or not getting it? Like, I don't know. Is there I mean, a right some and wrong? Wouldn't get their flu shots because they'd say, "I don't want to be sick for a day," and sometimes the flu shot makes me feel kind of sick. And and I've heard that against the COVID vaccine, yeah. or they say, "Well, I I never get the flu, or I had the flu once and it wasn't that bad." COVID can kill you. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess, and I guess, so so could the flu. But I mean, the argument is, is if someone feels that they, you know, shouldn't take something, then then why would they? Like, and I guess yes, there's probably the skeptics out there, the anti-vaxxers and all that. That's a different sort of example. But yeah. I would think there's still a lot of people out there that just say, you know what, I don't want to smoke, so I'm not going to smoke. I don't want to take a flu shot because I'm not going to take one. Um, you know, I, I I met a guy one time who, um never wore a seatbelt. And I asked him why. And he said, well, you know, I've never been in an accident. It's okay, bud. Uh, He said, I've never been in an accident. But I think that if I were ever in an accident, I could probably reach my hand over fast enough to get that seatbelt on. Hmm. And I'm thinking, you've never been in an accident. There there is no way in hell you're going to reach over and get that seatbelt on in time. Yeah. That's the same problem, isn't it? Well, right? yes and no. I mean, I, 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 for one, had the had the flu on a few occasions. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I wouldn't say anyone would want the flu when you have it. Um, right. But certainly it didn't make me go out there and get a flu vaccination every year. P- people, you know, p- 
people can make up their own mind on something, uh, and they do. Yeah. Uh, when it's a matter of you know personal convenience or health or you know, and this is an argument some of the uh, COVID deniers have been have been making. Um, and if somebody says, "I don't want to get the COVID vaccine because I don't care if I get sick, and I don't care if I spread it to other people. I'm willing to take that risk. I don't want to wear a mask. Leave me alone." Hmm. I wouldn't say that that person is a denier. They're something else, right? But they're not a denier because they're not denying the facts. They're just saying that they don't care. Yeah. The, the, the people that I'm really talking about here are the ones who are justifying their behavior based on uh, a misinterpretation of what the scientific evidence is telling them. Yeah, yeah. So somebody who said, you know, I know what the scientific evidence is telling me. I don't care. Same, same thing, by the way, with climate change. If somebody says to me, you know, I'm not a climate denier. I think that the global temperature is going up. I think that we're causing it. But I really don't care because I'm going to be dead by the time it gets really bad. And I love my SUV and I love my electric blanket and I don't want to use solar. And I really, really, really don't care about the threat to all the future generations and the people in the Maldives. <laughs> yeah. I just don't care. That person, you know, I, I disagree with them vehemently about their their values, but they're not a denier. But at least they're owning it. They're owning it. Yeah. But, but you you know, you you don't hear that too often. No, no. You you hear it sometimes. Mm. You hear mm. it sometimes. Um, some some people we, have made the argument with climate change. Uh, you know, it, first it was it's not happening, then it's well, it's not as bad as we thought, and then it's well, it's too late. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I interviewed a guy um, who's, uh, he talked about the FDA approval of a drug over there. It's an opioid, Oxy. Oxycontin. Oxycontin? Yeah. Um, Oxycodone, Oxycontin. Yeah. Now, I'm not, I don't do enough research in the area, so I'm not claiming anything, but he sort of said to, um, he stated that um, the FDA actually approved this because there was a guy there. Who just let it go through without the strict adherence that the FDA usually mm -hmm. follows, and allowed it to go through. Now we've got an opioid epi epidemic in the states right now, right? Yes. Um, it's highly addictive, and and many people are overdosing from it, and more and more people, um, even right. during this time, uh, apparently. Um, so I just wondered if he was, you know, maybe he's got a different agenda himself, um, and I could make my own assumptions here, but. You know, when that sort of stuff gets out there, does it not make people, yeah, sceptical, I suppose? Uh, I, it might if that story were true. I don't know if it's true. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the one that I know to be true, and I'm not doubting you, I just, I haven't, you heard it from someone else, and I, I haven't verified it for myself. But um, the one that I have heard, um, that I'm sure you've heard as well, is the drug thalidomide. Um which was a, a, a sleeping medication back in, the, I guess it was the 50s or 60s, yeah. which you know was approved in Europe, not approved in the United States. But then it turned out, um, in some cases, uh, pregnant women would have uh, babies with uh, deformities. 
Uh, and, you know, so people will sometimes say, well, you know, science doesn't know everything. The regulatory agencies don't know everything. Things can slip through. They need to do more testing. I'm skeptical. You know, this could be another thalidomide. I hear that one, hmm. you know, hmm. as, the, as the basis for, uh, for skepticism, yes. Um, you know, and, and as I said, people are, I, I don't begrudge them to have questions and to be able to say, you know, here's what I would need to convince me. It's that even when they get the sufficient evidence to convince them, then they'll just change and ask for something they'll else. Find, yeah, they'll find some other way to continue and, their belief. And, and what, that zero, what that zeroes in for me is that it's not about facts, it's about identity. Hmm. It's about this feeling of alienation and distrust. Hmm. Uh, it's it's about you know us versus them, not facts versus non-facts. Yeah. That 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 was the most fascinating discovery in my book, uh, and and I I mean I didn't invent this. I I read other people's work you know talking about this and thought that just makes so much sense that the, this belief system is really about identity because in talking to science deniers. That's how they think of it, and that's how a number of them got into it. It was an an identity change for them. This is not just what they believe; it's who they are. Yeah, 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 and very hard to change that. Yes, and, it um, is. but possible uh, in some cases. Really cool conversation, Lee. I haven't uh, read your book yet, but my father read it ah. uh, and absolutely loved it. So thank you. <laughs> Always a good recommendation. Listen to Dad. And um, yes, yeah, sometimes, say. Eh? Uh, I will share this with him too, but really appreciate you coming on. Is there, um, if people want to find out more about your work, obviously you've got a lot of books there. We'll stick some links in the show notes, but is there any way people can reach out to you or, or check in sure. with your work? Um, my website is leemcintyrebooks.com. Yeah. You can link to any and buy any of my books that you're interested in. Find out where I'm spe- where I've spoken and where I'm speaking next. Look at radio, TV, podcasts that I've done. And uh, there's also contact buttons. So if you want to contact me and send me an email, uh, I, I just got one today from a flat earther who was very upset with me. So um, <laughs> if you want to write write me an email, please go ahead. All right. Excellent. Love it. Thank you so much, Lee, for coming on. Really cool conversation. I have loved every minute of it, and I appreciate your me, time. Me as me too. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thanks, Lee. Guys, check it out at thehiddenwire.com. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. 
You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose. And in doing so, you will discover your hidden why. This is The Hidden Why. My name is Lee Manutzi. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon.